0: history is fundamentally incomplete and it's constantly being informed by the future and there's a this image of like a seed becoming a tree where where we don't we don't actually understand the seed what it is truly uh, until we see the tree we understand the seed because of the tree and and that, But that is the future informing, retroactively, the past. So we're in this bizarre uh, state of, of living through time that the future is not yet. And there are things coming down the road that are going to inform what all of this is.
1: the gentlemen boys and girls podcast listeners of all ages welcome welcome to episode 48 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast and listen this one is gonna be out of this world that is a terrible pun and the reason I made that pun is to alleviate partially my own anxiety about this conversation uh, and also because as I want to say uh, I cannot abide low-hanging fruit if the joke is, able to be made, I I kind of have to make it. This conversation is with uh, an author named Ambrose Andriano, who just released his debut book. And the book is called Angels, Archons, and Aliens. And it is, as it sounds, a book that is about aliens, about the possibility of them being out there, the possibility of them being here, the possibility of them kind of being in communication with humanity. Um, and it is, uh, it's a, it's a mammoth book, um, some 800, some odd pages, some thousand plus footnotes, uh, researched as you're going to hear throughout this conversation pretty heavily over a long period of time, and also researched very curiously, but without a lot of preconceptions from Ambrose. Uh, here's one preconception that he brought with him and that he maintained is, uh, his viewpoint as a Christian. And yet also he comes to surprising some surprising conclusions throughout Uh, throughout the book. Uh, So I made a disclaimer with him while he was on the air. And so this is nothing that I would not or did not say to him, but I'll say it at the the very front here as a preface. I'm agnostic on the conversation. I'm agnostic as to whether or not uh, aliens are real. And if they are, what it might mean for us. And then also what it might mean for the Christian viewpoint, but I'm not agnostic about Jesus. Uh, So I I maintain that particular lens throughout this conversation. Uh, Nonetheless, I think it's a fruitful and interesting conversation because as, as Ambrose himself brings out, uh, it is top of mind for a lot of people. And so anything that uh, is, you know, a pain point, a point of kind of cultural intersection for a lot of people, it's, it's worth at least kind of making your, uh, yourself aware of it and then kind of hopefully uh, you know, Uh, coming to some sort of not prefab conclusions about it, but, you know, giving it some thought. So, uh, to that end, I hope that you're going to find this conversation to be helpful and interesting. Uh, maybe this is something that rubs you the wrong way, or maybe you're excited to hear it and you want to let me know. Either way, reach out, uh, let us know what your thoughts are. Without any further ado, my conversation with Ambrose Adriano. Okay, so Ambrose, I'm curious, I mean, how does that, work? I don't know enough about the Orthodox Church to know how that works. So when everybody, whenever anybody is received into the church, are they are they given or do they choose a name? Is it kind of a combination of those two things?
0: Yeah, so so people who are born or in an Orthodox context, usually their parents uh, just give them like the name of a saint, right? And so...
1: As like a first name, as a middle name, or kind as of a first com- name, as a first name, yeah, okay. and
0: right. and that usually sometimes it corresponds to their actual birth date. So like okay. they choose a saint that is like commemorated on that day, sure, um, or they could choose a different saint that isn't like the feast date isn't essential, but um, but people who who are converts when they are received into the church, they kind of uh, take on that tradition mm-hmm. so most people choose a a saint to like kind of uh, emulate and sometimes it sometimes you'll choose one that's like from your birthday sometimes you'll choose one that just that resonates with you right my wife uh was already named catherine so she just kind of went with
1: saint catherine and who's ambrose Ambrose of Milan well that's who uh, that's who Augustine was a uh, was a uh, underneath right or yeah. had kind of said under- okay yeah all right yeah
0: yeah I I chose him because he kind of represents uh one of the major figures in bringing like Origenian interpretation to the Latin West because he he was one of the few people who who read both Latin and Greek. So he was reading Origen and like Philo of Alexandria, and he brought their uh, kind of mystical, allegorical, interpretive method into a Western context. And it was actually uh, Ambrose's um, commentary on Genesis that really spoke to Augustine when he was still like a Manichean. And so I, because I like origin, that was kind of like a pretty easy fit, and he's also Italian.
1: So <laughs> hey, 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 he's Italian. Hey, um, yeah, interesting. So, but does Augustine. I, I mean, I, this is we're gonna get to where we're actually talking about. I promise. But Augustine is kind of. Would you say that he's one of the first people who, in the the West, starts to push back pretty hard on some of the kind of allegorical originian kind of interpretations or is that not accurate
0: um i'm not read enough in augustine to say definitively but i have like certain scholars like uh i think it was like caroline Bammel, uh drew attention to how in early augustine because you know there's two two augustines he had a long life yeah yeah Uh, Early Augustine, at least, was heavily influenced by Origen, and and there's multiple reasons for that. Like, one is just his connection to Ambrose. There's also a a, um, potential connection to Rufinus. Um, But, yeah, at least early on, uh, Augustine was heavily influenced by that interpretive method. But yeah, there there does seem to be some um, contention in that period because it seems to be the case that when uh, when Augustine uh, wrote his commentary on Romans, when he published that, Rufinus translates (laughs) Origen's commentary on Romans into Latin as kind of like a...
1: This, you this get the job done. This Sorry. one's better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So close, but, uh, you, yeah. no cigar. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the reason to talk about origin is because a, I know almost nothing about him and I find it fascinating. And B, you seem to know a whole boatload about him. And so that's actually how I first kind of saw your name. Um, I don't know how many years ago it would have been, but it was in conversations that you were having online specifically. about yeah. Origin. And, uh, I had listened to John bear, uh, give a, give a talk about his translations of on first principles. And that was kind of the first thing that that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody, frankly, speak uh, positively about origin. Uh, For the most part, what I'd heard was just kind of, he was the allegorical boogeyman who kind of had opened the door to a lot of things that in my faith tradition, we don't really talk about. Uh, And so, so then I kind of saw your name floating around this conversation and I know that you'd done some, some work. And so I kind of just, mentally bookmarked you and so uh, yeah. it, it wasn't though until you started talking about this latest project that i reached out to you to have this conversation so origin uh, was the gateway uh, into yeah. this particular conversation i know that origin was the gateway in some respects for you as well into into the research that you did now the the book that we're going to be talking about is one called um is it it's angels archons and aliens is that how yeah. is do you is it archon or archon archon right Archon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you later on what an archon is, um, and uh, and I'm going to give a preface before we dive real deep into that, mm-hmm. just kind of like from my perspective yeah. where I'm where I'm coming to you at in this conversation. But again, origin was kind of how you got there. So tell me, tell me a little bit about um, a little bit, a, bit of, a little bit about that journey for you.
0: Yeah. So so the word archon is a, a Greek word it pretty much means ruler and that word is typically translated in english bibles as uh principalities hmm. but if you look at the greek it just says archon or or like the root word and stuff so um <clears throat> so there there is this understanding that there are uh there's a you, you could call it a ruling celestial class of beings that are kind of inhabiting our skies. And uh, and, and yeah, so, so that's where that, that word comes from. Sure. But um, I, so like during my time studying origin, I was also doing a simultaneous like parallel study of uh, Mesopotamian scholarship. Uh, to enhance my understanding of the historical background of the Hebrew Bible that I was taught to revere. Studying <coughs> the connections to Mesopotamia was eye-opening in of itself, uh, but it's what led me to finding out about this guy named uh, Zechariah Sitchum, um, who was known for proposing that the, the Anuna. Of the, of the Sumerians were extraterrestrial visitors in our prehistoric past, uh, which is now known as the quote-unquote ancient astronaut hypothesis. Uh, pretty much largely ignored Sitchin's writings, but but this hypothesis was something I considered worthy food for thought because there's really no good reason to believe that this could not have been the case given the scientific and textual data that we have, most astrophysicists would say that it's basically a mathematical certainty that extraterrestrial life exists. And that is with a randomized materialist cosmology without a divine creator. So even even with that, they're saying that. So the, the possibility only increases with intelligent design. And there's no reason to believe that we could not have had any extraterrestrial visitors come to this planet at some point in the past, you know, 4.4 billion years. <clears throat> so this caused me to seriously investigate the probability of that theory based on my own knowledge of religion and my access to scholarly material. And this of course led to the creation of my book. So.
1: Right. Which is a, a juggernaut book. Uh, I don't, nine, maybe 800, 900 pages. Um, the footnotes are in the four digits. So, I mean, like, you definitely, you showed your work yeah. uh, as a, a math teacher would ask you to do, right? There's no no doubt that you left a really good paper trail in terms of the effort that was put into it. When did you start writing it? Um,
0: I think I started maybe 2020. Okay or maybe like maybe 20 late 2019.
1: All right. With the research and whatnot. Um, yeah. And so uh, we're going to, I'm going to get you to lay out essentially that book. Uh, I would like to, maybe we'll put a pin at origin or maybe sure. origin, maybe origin actually comes back in as you lay out sure. the book. I'm not sure. Cause I know that he gets cited quite a bit in the book, Yeah. Uh, but this is as good a place as any to say, I'll give you, I'll give a disclaimer here in your presence so that I don't give a disclaimer off air that, it's Mm -hmm. going to somehow be like superimposed and be like, I didn't know that we've chatted a lot before this. So I'm, I'm approaching this as an agnostic in some respects. Uh, So I'm not, uh, I'm not closed to the conversation, Mm -hmm. but nor am I somebody who is convinced and or, you know, on the inside on this. Um, I ultimately, as I mentioned, I'm the one who reached out to you to have this conversation. I was interested in it and you were kind enough to give me an early copy of the book and, the, my life at the time did not allow me to read it all, but I did read the numbers <laughs> of it. And I know you're going to tell me uh, or tell us who are listening that there's a, the way to do it is to try to work through it all because it's a cumulative argument essentially that builds, which I totally yeah. respect, totally respect. I was kind of trying to get the gist. And sometimes when yeah. you do that, you're, you're missing some things. But uh, as I was working through it, eventually I, at one point I was like, I, mean, I, I don't know if I can have this conversation because I don't know if it's going to be fair to, to Ambrose. I'm not sure if it's going to be a, you know, maybe it might be a confusing conversation for people who are listening mm-hmm. and they know kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, but it wasn't until I hit a certain uh, page that I said, well, now I kind of feel like I have to have this conversation. So I'm going to – here's the justification. This is from page 80. You said, Christians and pretty much everyone else among the religiously observant cannot exactly take a wholesale rejection approach to what you call here as contactees, so people who who claim mm-hmm. to have been in touch with – Um, extraterrestrials because religions everywhere begin with the testimony of a contactee Judaism and Christianity are certainly no exception you give a list of people who claim to Mm have had contact with some one something that is not of this world right and then Christians who dismiss them simply for being paranormal or beyond what can be fully understood will inadvertently remove the ground beneath their own feet um, and I think that there's something something in that. Now, I'm ultimately, at this point in time, as I said, coming down on the idea that one doesn't need to then conclude necessarily the same kinds of things that you'll conclude. But if you go into it thinking mm, the inexplicable is inexplicable because it's unreal, is definitely not a very good way for somebody who claims to believe in Jesus Christ as a, as a way of approaching it, right? Yeah. It's not. It's just not honest. And we can unpack maybe a little bit more about uh, mm-hmm. how I feel about that. But I'll turn it back over to you and say, you know, with that being said, lay us out kind of the overarching um, uh, plan, I guess, of the of the book and how you work through this con this content.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> uh, the the first chapter is dedicated to um, refuting many of the common arguments that debunkers make kind of serve only to make people dismiss the subject and and not even look at it
1: what are debunkers how would you define debunkers so um i
0: make a distinction between debunkers and skeptics okay those a skeptic is somebody like like yourself who is is more agnostic and and uh wants to look into the claims and and you know Look into the the reference sources and and all that to kind of come to a conclusion. Somebody that doesn't really have a preconceived um, uh, allegiance sure. to some, you know, a debunker is is somebody who is really uninterested in the facts and and learning something has is and is trying to convince themselves out of believing it. Right. And so it's more of a psychological. Uh, phenomenon with debunkers so, they'll so just Jeff, yeah they'll just say an argument to dismiss something the argument might not make any sense but they're, they'll believe it because they don't want to believe you know
1: sure they have an apologetic or, they have an apologetic right. rubric already built in place so it, right. if x then y right, You're right. Just gonna...
0: yes so i kind of um lay out a bunch of arguments that that a debunker might make or has made and uh just just to get that out of the way right in the beginning of the book Mm -hmm. because a lot of that stuff is going to prevent people like because when i thought about like how i would structure the book like if i started talking about you know some contact or something like that and like go over this person's life and and their experience um a debunker type is just going to dismiss the whole thing. So so I knew I needed to get those dismissals out of the way first so that people could even be allowed to like read these stories with with a more open mind. And so that that's the first chapter. And um then after this I get into a, a historical survey of aerial phenomena going back thousands of years. Um And then chapter three is about the the nature of the global cover-up of the subjects led by the United States going back to the 1940s, and like why there was cover-up and all that. Um, Because I knew that I had to talk about that, because inevitably that's going to be the next question, right? So um, chapter four is about Christian history, examining the information found in the New Testament and monastic literature regarding unidentified aerial phenomena. Up until the uh, present day, so readers can get can, can compare the information in that chapter with what's found in chapter two and kind of see the similarities. And chapter five is about aerial phenomena in the Hebrew Bible. And whether the extraterrestrial hypothesis has explanatory power. Chapter six is all about comparing the Hebrew Bible with the Mesopotamian literature, like I was mentioning before showing that culture, the cultures were not so different from one another and that much of the Hebrew Bible was inherited information with minor adjustments and everything. Uh, chapter 7 goes over some of the assertions from uh, U.S. intelligence insiders. Uh, for one example, it would be like retired CIA officer John Ramirez about the extraterrestrial presence in our ancient past, as well as the possibility of subterranean civilizations. Chapter eight is an introduction to some of the evidence of human involvement with the creation of flying saucers, such as Nikola Tesla, John von Neumann, uh, Oscar, Captain Oscar Schneider, uh, the Navy's classified Project Rainbow, which is popularly known as the quote-unquote Philadelphia Experiment, portals, teleportation, time travel, parallel universes, etc. get into all of that. Uh, chapter nine is everything relating to parapsychology. So, astral projection, remote viewing, psychedelics, near death experiences, hypnosis, reincarnation. Chapter 10 is about the various extraterrestrial phenotypes that people report and their possible agendas. Chapter 11 is what the alleged extraterrestrial contacts say about the person of Jesus Christ. And the final chapter is my engagement with Christian with like Christians with the UFO subject thus far and why most of them are are poorly thought out and simplistic apologetics meant to maintain some received status quo. So that's like a summary of the book.
1: Right. It's wild. It's a lot. Um, I mean, you said the word phenotypes in there. I didn't want to stop your flow, but just if if I don't know what it is, I mean. That doesn't mean that other people don't, but what's a phenotype?
0: So what I mean by that is like the different um you could say species of of beings, like some look like the, the little grays, sure. some some are more insectoid in appearance. Right. Just like those distinctions.
1: Okay. Um man. Okay. Lots. Uh yeah. now now from my perspective, the thing that I'm most interested in is what you stacked at the end of the book, uh, right? Let's let's cut to the mm-hmm. chase. But I do understand uh, you've, you've given ample and justified caution, saying that if you don't kind of work through it, it's it's simply not going to make sense. And I listen. I empathize because you know when I release you know research content into the world, people read the headline or they read mm-hmm. the conclusion, right? So they wanna they want to know yeah. okay what what are you saying and then what does it mean. Or, you know, what can I do with it? Yeah. Um, but then often the kinds of pushback that you get are things that you have addressed in the process. Right. Uh, but they're nonetheless, because they didn't walk through the process with you, they're using that as a, a way of dismissing A, the headline, or B, the conclusion. I get it. It's it's incredibly frustrating. It yeah. is, however, the nature of the beast. Uh, so you're going to – when when you write a book, it's interesting. Like, are you hoping that most people will – well, first of all, who is your audience for this book? Let's ask it that way. Who are you hoping is going to engage with this material?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm definitely not expecting it to be a bestseller. That's for sure. Pretty- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is not. It's not a book for everyone. That's you know pretty obvious. Um, but it's it kind of <clears throat> came out of my own. Uh, questioning for like just my, for myself, mm-hmm. like it's really a book I I felt I had to write mm-hmm. for just for me, and for it's really for other people who are uh, trying, who are kind of noticing a lot of the same details, and who are trying to um, learn more to kind of put pieces together. So it, it is it is very niche. In that sense, Um, because like it's yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of advanced as far in terms of like the a lot of the knowledge that needs to be required. But i I try to I try to be be a teacher in 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 a way that any anyone can kind of pick it up Mm. and learn a lot of things about history, whether it's, you know, sightings or Christian history or, or whatever, I tried to make, make that a priority for, for the more uninitiated and, you know, like a, citing all my, citing all my sources and all of that for, for further investigation. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not for, it's, it's not for like the wide populace. It's, it's for
1: very, people who, who are really interested in learning more. And I mean, you know, given the last couple chapters, it's, nor is it probably just for the, any, any old person who is interested in Star Trek or right. thinks they saw a light in the sky. Like the idea that you're building so much around, I mean, not just the last two chapters. I mean, you could say it's religious up to that point, but when you really start getting out of the person of Jesus Christ, yeah, I mean, it's like, you do have a vantage point here. That's worth saying that, you still, as far as I know, asked this in advance, but like you, you mm-hmm. consider yourself to be a Christian, yeah, you you are an an, a, an active member at, mm-hmm. at a local church, um, yeah. So this hasn't driven you to what people would consider atheism or apostasy. No. Well, it hasn't driven you to what you think people would consider to be atheism yeah, or yeah. apostasy, but yeah. it, it but no doubt it's a bit of a wedge issue for for a lot of people uh, in terms of how they're mm-hmm. going to go ahead and a- approach this. Um, beforehand, did you also in 2019 or 2020? Yeah, yeah. When you started doing the research, um, did you have a, an experience that led you in this direction, or did you have a presupposition that this is where you were going to end up?
0: No. 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 This this was just like a very natural. One thing led to another, and <laughs> and and it's it's all related. It's all connected.
1: Well, what's the thing that led to it then? Because is that origin? Is that where is that where origin makes its way into the picture? No, it's no.
0: it's really just like so. So there, there are things, there are things in the Bible, in the New Testament, that get Christians thinking about, you know, things in the sky, like sure. Paul talks about the the archons which are translated the principalities powers uh that that's who we're wrestling against not flesh and blood but those things in the sky that are controlling this planet like right and and so there's already a a baseline for that kind of thought that we are that that's this is the spiritual warfare thing right so so there's that and but then there's also um you know you read genesis 6 you know what the heck's going on there beings come from somewhere else come down colonize cohabitate produce hybrids like what is that exactly (laughs) you know most people don't don't want to talk about it but we have to right? right so like there's weird stuff in the bible there's weird stuff in every every religion and so it's really not unnatural to end up here because if you're if you're like a scholarly and you're trying to learn more and more about what you're studying, that's going to just widen your net, right? It's mm-hmm. not different; it's just widened. So that's like I said, like I I was studying uh, Mesopotamian literature, which is a lot of the same stuff with different semantics, and and then that's what led to the, the, the UFO, ufological element to it.
1: But from a Christian perspective, and I, uh, I hate to say that word because I think that that's when I say. I don't hate to say the word Christian, but I hate to use it here because I think it's kind of like the word smurf if you're of a certain age. Like you can kind of, you can use it to mean kind of whatever you want mm-hmm. in some respects. Um, so as, as I have understood it uh, from a global and historical Christian Orthodox perspective, mm-hmm. we... Would just say that all those things are spiritual. So the, the the Nephilim arrangement is a a spiritual reality that's breaking into our material reality. We would say that the our, the rulers and the principalities are spiritual realities that mm-hmm. occupy, you know, the the Zeitgeist. You know, it's the mm-hmm. it's the, the, the spirit of the age, spirit in the air. It's yeah. it's the thing inside us from. A, and I know you get into the kind of Platonic versus Aristotelian divide of the West and the East. But I mean, like we hear inher- inheritors as far as I can tell of the platonic variety that kind of has this disconnect between the physical and the, the spiritual. So there's this thing that is incorporeal. Like you cannot touch it because it doesn't have substance. And that is the real. So we, we have a category of understanding that this thing that's not able to come here, in a spaceship, so to speak. Uh, so y- you could, you could maybe see it with your, your spiritual eyes, but not with your physical eyes. Right. And we, and we have a way of thinking that that is somehow what these anomalies that we encounter in scripture and even in Christian experience are. So you, yeah. you trace it in a different direction though. So, so, I mean, feel free to respond to that however you see fit, but I, I'm trying to understand why the conclusion has to be, Or, and again, maybe it's because I've I've skipped the process in some respects, but it sounds as though you have a, you want to call it a monistic, or there's a a way that kind of spirit and substance are connected in a way that is not as simple as just saying there's those spiritual things out there and us physical things down here.
0: Yeah. So I I, I go over this in the book that um, the corporeal and incorporeal kind of debate is is a bit strange to me because do do you know how many <clears throat> how many angels in in the Bible show up without a body zero
1: show up without a body right because bo- you, you get you get some interesting examples of that yeah yeah
0: and true. and so every single time a you know something is a so-called angel which It just means messenger. It's not very helpful. But um, every instance of something that is perceived to be an angel or even a god, such as the um, Genesis 6 incident, the sons of the gods, uh, are all physical. They're all written as a physical event. Right. You have people being touched, grabbed. In, in the case of Peter in the New Testament, he's like kicked when he's in prison, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wake up. <clears throat> yeah. So you have this physical contact That's... with so-called spiritual beings. So so something is wrong here in this, in the way we're talking about this. So this is why I think the the physical spiritual distinction is just a distinction. It's not it's not a separation. And so there, there so that I this is why I go over in the book, the kind of um the the more like theosophical metaphysical paradigm that kind of sees things on a on a spectrum wavelength of where it's it's more fluid where you can shift um kind of energetically shift in in and out of difference frequencies right it doesn't mean they're, they're not physical but they can be physical in different in different places um but but again we, we don't really know what spirit what the mechanics of spirit is or the mechanics of matter Like we're still learning this scientifically like if you if you zoom in on a on someone's hand right zoom in zoom in like at the quantum level you get like Nucleus with electrons and like what? What is that?
1: Like, so we don't really know what matter even is. So I knew we were going to get to origin at some point. So you now you do bring up something that I had heard before, and I do think is fascinating. And I think for some people is probably a touch too far, <coughs> and might be a great example of, uh, which is the the shapeshifter Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And so and so this is this is a, a fascinating <laughs> idea, which is like. Uh Origen said, you can correct me if I go off here, but origin says the reason, and this is, this is a, a in some respects, a brilliant move, whether it's accurate or not is not really important, <laughs> but, but brilliant. The reason that Judas has to betray Jesus with a kiss is not just because they didn't have iPhones back then to be able to snap mm-hmm. a photo of him, because other people were able to tell who Jesus was, right? They followed yeah. him, they knew who he yeah. was, but that he was, in some respects, able to manipulate his appearance, so we, and we mm-hmm. now—I don't know that he directly ties this in, but I would not in any way be surprised if he—he if he doesn't. We have this instance earlier on when Jesus is being cornered by people, and he—I mentioned that you mentioned that. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. and he—I don't remember where that which which passage that's from, but anyway, he just kind of slips on through the crowd. Yeah. So you know, whether he blinds people or whatever. There's a, we have all these different kind of interpretations of right. what happens, but one potential one would be he don't look the same anymore, right? right. Uh, which. So the or- origin says this is the the reason is that he's able to manipulate his appearance in some respects. And that's kind mm-hmm. of gets back to this malleability thing that you say. So yep. that, that, that doesn't mean so from a Christological perspective, and this is where I know I'm always trying to push it to the end and try to understand, but does that make him less human in some respects? Because I know that one, a very important part of how we understand the incarnation and what it's able to to do for us is that Christ really truly becomes human. Um, Yeah.
0: I don't think that makes him less human. Um, I think that that would more tie into um, you can call it like occult knowledge. Like he has, he has a knowledge about um, how to manipulate matter in a way that others don't. That doesn't mean he's, you know, that necessarily different from us. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that was a, a popular interpretation in Alexandria. That was kind of a normal, a normal thing that people believed in that, in that location, that Jesus could shapeshift. That was just kind of like a traditional uh, view. And that's something that interestingly enough, that I had that suspicion myself, not all, it kind of based on my own uh dream or vision or whatever it was with with Jesus and my subsequent reading of the text of the new testament where mary magdalene didn't recognize him and thought he was the gardener mm. and because for me <clears throat> in my encounter he he looked like um, he he gave me kind of a Paul Bunyan vibe like phys, his physical appearance okay like like obviously I I was expecting like a, a middle Eastern kind of look right sure but he had like a like a reddish tint hmm. to his hair and and I just it, that I I was expecting that I like I knew it was him somehow was almost like that knowledge was like was like given to me but kind of installed into me without any words like i just knew that that was jesus but he looked so different he looked in, and i that was like the, the first thing i said to him was you don't look look like the way we think you look like <laughs> and um but then then when i read about you know mary mary magdalene not recognize him. I put those two to get two things together, and I, I thought that it was possible that he was able to change his appearance. Hmm. So, and that was even that was before that was years and years before I even like knew that this was even a thing that people believed.
1: Right.
0: Um, Fascinating. So, yeah, it is very interesting. Hmm.
1: Um, so I mean, you mentioned you kind of alluded there to the the uh, realization that you had a, a what you would probably call a direct encounter with, with Christ. And you're not, are you comfortable saying whether you were awake or whether you were dreaming at the time? Oh, it was
0: definitely a dream. I woke up
1: from it. Yeah. Right. But it, but it was a, I mean, lots of things happen in dreams in the Bible. So, I mean, you, you, you do count it not as just a random synapse firing of the brain. It was an actual kind of communication.
0: Yeah. I like, I woke up like breathing heavy and like I, It was it was an experience like I've I've had nightmares before I've had you know other kinds of dreams before I don't I don't really vividly dream I don't I usually don't even remember my dreams Mm -hmm. but I could say that this this was a very unique event over the course of my life I've never had anything like it before or since so yeah I I don't and I'm, I'm a sorry i have um a very inquiring mind and i don't i don't i'm not really like dogmatic about what it is or isn't like i i don't know what that is what that experience was right but all i do know is that it was very unique and and as like a if you were to put all my dreams on a timeline, that is, that is the only thing like it. Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's, I think I mentioned to you uh, beforehand that one of the things that I've realized really on, more deeply over the last few weeks um, is that I'm biased. Like I, I have, a, and you, you, you corrected me with a different terminology, which I'll invite you to give me afterwards here, but essentially I, I am, I approach life through a lens in some respects. I, and I've, that's not revelatory to anybody, but what I've come to understand is that I'm no longer trying to shed. There's one lens that I'm not actually actively trying to get rid of. And that's my lens of uh, viewing the world through what I perceive to be a Christian, mm-hmm. ex- Christian experience. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I've, I've understood, you know, my, I I try to understand my whiteness. I try to understand my maleness. I try to understand my middle-classness. I try to understand my intellect, um, such as it is priority, all these kinds of things. Like I try to, and then I try to try on different glasses to make sure that I'm not being blinded to the truth. But the one thing that I I could also say I could do is I'm going to try to take off my Jesus glasses for a little bit and try to just see things like objectively or just like truly see them as they are, not through the lens of my Christian experience. And I'm like, I don't think, I don't think I'm gonna do that. Um, and so, and the re- the reason reason is is because I just I feel like, I feel like I just don't, I don't want to. Like I feel like I kind of want to keep seeing things the Jesus way. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think that I, I mean my denominational background. I don't think that I I mean hopefully my myopic experience of what I mean by Jesus. But nonetheless, I have seen a trend where uh, some people just they just try to follow. You know, as we've heard in Canada and probably in the U.S. as well over the last couple of years, they just, they just try to follow the science. They're just going after data, 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 as though there is a way to view data without lenses. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't know that there is. And so for me personally, I'm like, if there's one set of glasses that I don't really want to take off, they're the ones that kind of show me Jesus. Now, I don't think that you you are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I I do say that, like, before I jump off a cliff and say, I just want to see what's, what's out there. I'm like, I, I, I that's, there's one step that I won't go beyond mm-hmm. at this, at this point in my life, which is to take those Jesus glasses off. But it doesn't sound like you have any interest in doing that anyway. Um, but just for anybody who's like, Hey, I want to pick up this book. Uh, I, you know, check it out. It is available on Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's an e-version and there's also a, a, a physical version right. of it. Um, but if you're going to go into this this subject, this is probably a great place to start rather than just picking up any old book right. and trying to take a look at it. That is, in particular, if you're hoping to stay somehow with your Jesus glasses on and trying to get there. Because in the end, as far as I can tell, like I said, you haven't – you've gotten to a place where you go, I believe these contactees for the most part. I don't think that – I mean, you seem to have a uh, – you're still critical in the sense that you don't, just because somebody says something doesn't mean that you 100% accept it at face value. Right. But, uh, but you also are more believing than say a lot of other people would be. And In the end, you've come to some different kind of metaphysical conclusions and still those include Jesus. Yeah. Um, So what about, I mean, one of the things we wanted to talk about was kind of what got you here in some respects. So what was your faith journey like up to this point? Obviously you had a, a Jesus encounter that was kind of unusual, but yeah. you grew up not in the Orthodox church, correct? Right.
0: Yeah. I, I grew up in, uh, East Patchog on long Island, New York. And the first denomination that I kind of was, was in was the, uh, assemblies of God Pentecostal church, which was in kind of a neighboring town called Shirley. And, uh, and my, the rest of my dad's side of the family went to that church, um, and I kind of, you know, I was engaged in all all the the things that the kids do, like uh, they have this thing called Royal Rangers. <laughs> <That> <laughs> you know, good. you know good. how uh, the 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 trope of you know evangelical culture kind of taking taking things that the world does and christianizing them and making them a little bit worse.
1: <laughs> I've heard of this trend. Yes.
0: So Royal Rangers is kind of like the the Christian uh, Boy Scouts or or oh, yeah. you know something like that. But uh yeah, so that was that was my first church. And uh, as I got older, I went to a few Calvary Chapels because my my mom and my dad separated when I was very young. Okay. So eventually it was a situation where I was going to one church with my dad and then another church with my mom. So my mom went, always went to Calvary chapels. And so I would go there with her. And then my dad eventually went to this like preterist Bible Baptist church, very obscure, kind of a uh, old timey fundamentalist type of church. Um, And then, so that was all in New York. <coughs> and then I moved to North Carolina in 2008 experienced some more churches down there like the the independent fundamentalist kjv only baptist there's a lot of them down there um a bunch of non-denominational churches which i just kind of call Baptist uh there's a popular charismatic hub called fire church Then i moved so that that was in uh, north carolina Mm -hmm. then i moved to central pennsylvania where I still am in uh, late uh, 2011 and experienced uh, Brethren in Christ churches, which is kind of like a local like Mennonite type. Um, uh, Also reformed Presbyterian churches and then eventually now Eastern Orthodox where I currently attend. That's a lot.
1: Uh, The reason I highlight that uh, in some respects is that, um, and the other reason that I'm interested in this conversation is because I feel like so often, especially when you talk about like certain fundamentalist churches, and I'm not trying to pick on an actual denomination, I just mean like that terminology. So mm-hmm. kind of like the more closed or bracketed, maybe you might want to say, that your theology or thinking is, then when you bump up against an experience or a data set that falls outside of that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of people... End up uh feeling like, well, I can't hold this view and that view, or I can't contain both of these sets of data within my one world view. So I have to jettison something. And so I've right. seen a lot of a lot of young people when they run into science, jettison faith because they don't see any way to kind of hold both those things in its intention. Now or they jettison science. Or the citizen science. <laughs> right. Don't forget about that. <laughs> well, I don't care about that. <laughs> That's their problem when they don't wear their seatbelt. But, um, but no. But the, the. But the. I mean, the answer isn't always just to synthesize and harmonize. You can't always do that. That's a fallacy, mm-hmm. right? You can't just be like, all data works. Let's just put it all together and make sure that we can have have different hermeneutics that kind of look at them differently. But a softening and an understanding of what actual orthodoxy is. And I don't mean orthodoxy like Greek orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. I just mean like right understanding of what the faith, what the Christian faith actually is. So that's why I wanted to ask about part of the research that you do in the book is what's heresy when it comes to believing in aliens, because this is part of the, no doubt if you've listened this far at some point, somebody has said, well, you can't believe in aliens and be a Christian because that's against the Bible. Uh, and so, like one of the things that I would have heard is, for example, looking at the Genesis account and saying, that "In the beginning, God created them, male and female, in His image. They created; He created them." Um, and that's used often in, in gender and sexuality debates mm-hmm. to say that, therefore, intersex people don't exist, or therefore, different kinds of expressions don't exist. Now, this is not a statement as to whether they do or not. You mm-hmm. can, we can leave that off. Table yeah. now. But the point is, is that saying I had a hamburger and a Coke is not saying I did not have French fries. And so the kind of, they look at the right. statements from that and go, this is all encompassing and it's exclusive. He created mm-hmm. male and female. He created humanity. Mm-hmm. And because it says nothing about creating extraterrestrials, We will go ahead and say they can't exist because it doesn't say that he created them. But it seems like the early church was saying we can't know because it doesn't say anything about it. Uh, Is that, but there's a certain point where that kind of flips. And so what did you find as you were reading through that? Um,
0: Well, for one Christian history is very complicated because any Anything, any kind of assertion that you can make about something a Christian believed, you could also make the exact opposite assertion, and that's also something a Christian believed. Right. (laughs) So it's like it this is this is why it gets tricky, is because quote unquote orthodoxy is established by the whatever community you're talking about. It's it's a community-based interpretation. So one community. Will come will kind of synthesize data in in a way that makes sense to them they'll come up with a canonized orthodoxy and then everything outside of that they consider heresy and some other community will do the same thing and that's why you have so many schisms denominations everything <clears throat> but but to me that's just evidence of mystery that just means that something we we don't have all the data we don't have all the information there's so many gray areas so many things are open to interpretation and so um so if 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 your framework is everything that isn't part of my synthesis or paradigm that i've inherited from from the ancient past is heresy if that's your if that's your position then a lot most things are heresy right because You have to look at, okay. well, what did what did this ancient community, what was their rationale for asserting the things that they've asserted? And that's the most important thing to me Mm -hmm. for uh, for for doing history, for historical study, is you have to you can't just take all assertions at face value and just believe them. You have to dig into the details what were they looking at? What, were, what was the rationale behind their conclusions? And do you have to look at the presuppositions un, underneath all of that?
1: That's notoriously difficult to get at. It though. is
0: so difficult. It <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. It's it's kind of enragingly difficult. <laughs> um, but th- but that is what we have to do to be correct. And so so th- that's what I try to do. I try mm. to g- dig into. Okay, so why did these people believe this about this, you know, what was, what was the logic here? And then that, then once you figure that out, you can examine whether that's a good argument or not. Right. 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 And so, so I don't, so for, for me, I don't simply uh, take, I don't take a receipt and just receive a, an old, paradigm and just assume they have everything right because i know that they they have blind spots too sure and so uh you kind of have to take things at a case-by-case basis and and see if if the arguments that they make still hold up today based on what we know right so that that's my approach um, is that
1: the copernican so this is the copernican example is kind of what i'm trying to angle towards mm-hmm. to specs which is that you you make a mention in the book of um Philip Melanchthon, who yeah. not everybody would know, but he's a Lutheran reformer, kind of uh is he is he contemporary of Luther or is he kind of like next gen? He's contemporary. Okay, yeah. Right. So um he's buddies. He's buddies with Martin. Yeah, I think um, I
0: think he was actually the reason uh why he I think he prevented Luther from removing the book of James from the Bible. <laughs>
1: Oh, yes, we always forget that he wanted to excise yeah. a piece of cannon. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I- in the book, you highlight the idea. It's just helpful for us to rem- remember when I was an undergrad, I studied uh, Bertolt Brecht's play, Galileo. And I mean, I'm so ignorant about this time period, but it's just like, like he was a heretic. Like he was, he was, now, Galileo didn't get uh, murdered. But Copernicus did is that how this worked I can't remember somebody got burned at the stake at the uh, multiple people died, yeah, on, the, people died. <laughs> on the assertion that the earth was not the center right. of the galaxy such that such as they understood it the idea yeah. that the earth revolves around the sun what right. they call heliocentric mm-hmm. um that was in the eyes of the Catholic Church and now we, we could talk and we talk about Roman Catholic Church I don't really know. I don't think that the Eastern Orthodox Church probably made a whole lot of uh, stances on it. And there were very many Protestants to speak up at this point in time. But we'll just say the church came right out with an official voice and said, this is heresy. Now, heresy isn't just wrong thinking in the eyes of Mm -hmm. the church. Heresy is wrong, divine-oriented, theological thinking and sustained teaching that is problematic and can hurt your soul. So, like, they came right out and said, this is not just like a mistake. This is heresy. This is against, this is contra Bible because they would use passages of scripture from the Bible to justify the idea that it's not possible. This is simply not the way that the world works because God said Mm -hmm. so.
0: Yeah, and and once you dig into the details, you can see exactly why they thought that. It's because they, over the years, you know, I mentioned that that Philip Langton, I think it was in 1550, uh, wrote a treatise against the Copernican idea of heliocentrism, because the thinking at that time, which was inherited from a much earlier period, was geocentric, right? The, the, the people in the earliest period who, who kind of came up with their uh, cosmological paradigm they were geocentrists so of course they their their theological thinking was rooted in geocentrism now that doesn't mean they're correct sure in their geocentrism
1: no.
0: so so if so there needs to be a category in christian thought that some underlying presupposition to to a received doctrinal synthesis could be incorrect and if it is you have to deconstruct your synthesis and resynthesize it to account for uh, new information,
1: which we have done. Right? There's nobody in my church who's oh. going to be upset, right. about the idea right. that we travel around. Well, I should, unless number- you're a
0: flat earther. <laughs> right. Unless you're a yeah. flat earther, let's 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 push, let's push pause <laughs> in that conversation. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah. So, but 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 this the the Philip the Langton argument is is kind of. Uh, um, I would say like a a microcosm of of the problem that that we face Mm -hmm. is is this it's a problem of synthesis where people fuse uh you could call it archaic ideas about the world the the way the universe works and and they dogmatize that as as from god Right. right But but really you it's also possible that you're just canonizing somebody else's error. Sure. That's that's a, a possibility. So so this is why we can't make we can't use theological constructions as a way to, cr- to critique science. We just can't do that. Um, either heliocentrism is true or it isn't. And if it's true then you need to retroactively update older presuppositions to account for this truth. So like if if a previous idea was that uh that we are we are just the earth is the only unique thing in the in the universe where Jesus came here because we are the the most special cool people ever uh, that might need to be updated.
1: <laughs> I think so. that's the, that's the linchpin and that's maybe where we'll try to kind of land it is I think that maybe that's the, the step, the bridge too far for many is possibly this. So like I said, nobody that I know of is going to have a problem. Nobody that I know personally has much of a problem with us circling around the sun, but that humanity is the Zenith of creation. Is a, definitely an embedded theology that we carry with us into most of our conversations. When we read scripture, uh, in our liturgies, when we just when we talk, kind of just colloquially, it's like, man, you know, what is man that you're mindful of us, Son of yeah. Man? Um, but, but that, that works together. But
0: that thought comes from geocentrism. That's where that comes from. The idea that we are the center of creation, of of the actual cosmos
1: sure
0: and so naturally people are going to assume that we are supremely special right well that's interesting
1: i mean does it come from geocentrism or has geocentrism in some respects come from that i'm not it's uh, i think it comes from
0: geocentrism
1: so when you read the genesis poem
0: this goes back to bias you're talking about bias very
1: possibly when you yeah so you listen push back however you want when you read the genesis poem i don't think it says that one of your conclusions need not be that the earth, um, that the sun travels around the earth. It, you don't have to arrive at that conclusion. It is one that we did arrive at, um, but it's not, it's not there. You can look for it. You can put it there, but it, it's, yeah, it's not. They there. didn't believe that. I, I
0: they what, they, I, they believe that the sun did go around the earth.
1: They believe the sun went around the earth.
0: Yeah, they were geocentrists.
1: Right, of course, of course, of course. No, so sorry. That's what I had meant to imply: is you you need not believe the geocentric model, but you can. There's room for it, but it's not embedded in the narrative. Likewise, there is room to believe in that narrative poem which we receive as canon. Uh, there's room to believe in that poem that humanity is the kind of like the culmination of, especially the second iteration of it that that you know when genesis 2 ever like there's room to see that humanity is at the the peak of the actual creation ladder in some respects there's room to see what we come to see later on as a theological interpretation of why angels become upset is because they're jealous of humanity right like we can we can see that there's room for it though it's not i would argue in the poem it's not it's not embedded in the poem. There's room for it to be interpreted and read back into the poem. Well, but is...
0: I, I I, don't know. I I would, I would conclude otherwise. I would say okay. it is baked in. I, I, or? I think geocentrism is baked into the Genesis narrative. Okay. And I think the original authors were geocentrists and that would, that makes sense. Sure. sure. That it is embedded, but, but obviously Christians today don't read it that way. And right. but, and I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. Right. Like, because that has always happened, like uh kind of reinterpretation, uh, spiritual interpretation, all that. Like, like this goes back to what you're saying about bias. Like we are going to uh be inherently inclined to read our biases into the text. Right. Biases that the original authors didn't have. Right.
1: Um
0: but so like if if you read like Genesis one one and two, uh, it is very much geocentric. Like all of all of the uh, all of all, all of the spotlight is on just Earth. Which I mean that it makes sense because we live here too. Like we're Earthlings. So obviously this is going to be about the creation of the Earth. But but yeah it and this is true for most texts of this era like they they were just geocentrists and so if we're if we are so like there's one element to this like the historical element we need to acknowledge that people from this time period believe things that we don't believe anymore okay so there's that now there's also there's also the phenomenon of like that doesn't mean we don't have to accept the stories anymore We can interpret them in light of what we believe and so both of those things are happening simultaneously in a variety of different christian communities so this is why it's it's challenging right but i don't want to say like i don't want to do the the philip melanchthon thing and say if if you don't if you don't agree with archaic understandings of of reality then you're, you're not a Christian.
1: <laughs> like, I don't sure. want to do that. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. The argument that I was trying to make was that both geocentrism and then I don't know what you want to call it, human centrism or uh, human uh, exceptionalism, whatever, maybe. Um, though there could be, though they're whether you want to say they're baked in or they're able to be read into the text, mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd go so far as to say that they're interlocking and inextricable from each other. Uh, and I think so, the one comes from the other you think that the one comes from the other. I think
0: geocentrism leads to human exceptionalism.
1: Sure. Well, I'm not going to say agree to disagree. I'm going to say I'll agree to remain agnostic because I guess the point is, is that if we, if we go so far as to say that the one is not true anymore, then I don't know if we have to go ahead and say that we have to assume then that the second one is not there's something in, there's something inherent. It seems like in Christian theology that when God becomes man, that is either corroborative and confirmative of our suspicions or is actually the thing that makes those suspicions true, which is that he was so, I guess, beholden or interested in or, smitten mm-hmm. <laughs> or invested in humanity mm-hmm. that he was willing to become that very thing. Uh, there is something kind of baked in and latent in that, that just kind of says, well, that means that the human exceptionalism is perceived as a bit of a thing. So I think it'd be tough to unseed that in terms of like, even mm-hmm. people like CS Lewis, who are willing to think about, you know, other worlds imaginatively. Uh, I don't know if that he would have allowed his mind to say then that, because that is kind of the big question. I'm probably one that we shouldn't drop at the end of a conversation, but is the idea then does I think Melanchthon uses, or maybe it was you that put the words in his own his own mouth about the slippery slope, is that if geocentrism yeah. becomes unseated, does Christ die and and rise again, in other planets, does he become other species? You know, like this this incarnation mm-hmm. idea, does it kind of get yeah. blown out and become cosmological? I feel like that's probably a step too far for a lot of people to be able to kind of mm-hmm. wrap their heads around.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's like that That just shows that there are there's so many elements to this uh, story that we don't have, right that we we are slowly coming to an understanding. And I mentioned this in in the end of the book. I kind of engage um the work of Dr. David Bentley Hart in his book, Tradition and Apocalypse that he makes a very important point that of of this kind of eschatological horizon and how that is, that's, like, history is fundamentally incomplete and it's constantly being uh, informed by the future. Okay, so, and there's a the, the, this image of like a seed becoming a tree, where where we don't we don't actually understand the seed what it is truly uh, until we see the tree. Right? We understand the seed because of the tree, and and that but that is the future informing retroactively the past. Sure. So we're in this bizarre uh state of of living through time mm-hmm. that the future is not yet mm-hmm. and there are things coming down the road that are going to inform what all of this is who jesus is why he came and all this we don't have this all figured out yet and so uh so that's why i'm i'm more open to different possibilities and And I'm not going to claim that I figured this all out, or that some other ancient figure figured this all out, because I know they didn't. I just know that they did not have access to all of the necessary uh, details and information. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds very New Testament to me in some respects. You know, this the idea that he, we just we just came through, you know, Easter season, and mm -hmm. you know, it, it took Jesus opening their eyes to see that all these scriptures, you know, that once they saw, once they saw the sapling, they were Mm -hmm. like, Oh, that's what that seed was doing there. Right. Right. Stuff that had been there for you know decades, centuries, pushing on millennia. Uh, So, I mean, we have it baked in in our own Christian understanding that you do need the revelation of the current in some respects to help you see the past. But Mm there is also a tension point that runs, you know, both, both the kind of, whether you want to call it progressive or liberal, probably not that maybe you want to call it the, maybe use the word apocalyptic or the, the, trage- mm-hmm. the eschatology that the trajectory view yeah. of Christianity versus the sort of conservative understanding, which is not just like conservative, like I don't want to be taxed, but I mean like holding on, like trying to understand what the constraints are like, mm-hmm. around this teaching, right? Those things are always in tension as we, as we go forward, I guess, through time. Uh, and so we need, I think, I think we need people with both lenses, both sets of glasses uh, in communication to each other. That's actually one of the beautiful things of uh, the church. Churches maybe like yours. I don't know it. A church like mine, which is that people who believe different things show up on Sunday and they, they worship God together. And, uh, yeah. and it's a, it's a, it's a binding agent in a way that helps keep these extremes uh, yeah. together at the same time. So my, my number one hope is that people who are, thinking you know uh, listen i grew up like huge into star trek star wars i liked but star trek i loved and so aliens <laughs> have always been like on my horizon uh, again I'm, I'm leaving this conversation the same way that i went into it although a little bit wiser thanks to your information and a and a little bit more curious and a little bit more open to it but what i'm specifically open to and, and wanting people to know is that and there's a, a section of the book which we didn't get a chance to look into at all which is kind of about uh, for lack of a better word, testing the spirits. Like you say, you, you have a whole section on what do these, uh, you know, ETIs or whatever, what do they say about Jesus? And I'm guessing that it's not always the same. Um, yep. And so there's lots of, you know, lots of different opinions. And so, and mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned psychedelics. So there's people who are having uh, corporeal, Interactions with these things. There's also people who are having psychedelic trips. There's also people who are having dreams. And mm-hmm. the bottom line is not everybody's saying the same thing about Jesus, just because not everybody has ever said the same thing about Jesus. And that happens for people who are on, right. on the planet Earth, too. And so if you're going into this as a Christian, which not everybody who's listening to this is, uh, mm-hmm. it's worthwhile being grounded on Christ in some respects, being grounded through your local faith tradition, not being closed minded, but being grounded, mm-hmm. having an understanding of it, having an understanding of the Bible. Uh, and then also not holding as dogmatic things that are not dogma. Uh, and so that's happened to so many people that I know, especially in the light of, you already mentioned the purported age of the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whether I'm pro or, or con that, we'll leave off the table. But the bottom line is, is that remaining understanding that that's not a dogma of the church and it's not a dogma of the Bible either. And so when you're faced with these kind of new paradigms where you go, I wonder if 6,000 years or four and a half billion years uh, or 13.8 billion years or whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. not related to Jesus. Uh, So you, you don't have to throw out any kind of baby uh, with any kind of bathwater, I guess, when it comes to these kind of adiaphora issues, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, uh, any, any last word, anything I said, put in your mouth that I shouldn't have put in your mouth or anything that we left off the table that you really wanted to
0: hit? One of the things about, like, like the the quote you mentioned about how the way we approach like contactees, mm-hmm. and and like we don't want to be guilty of double standards and all this, and 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 the importance of uh, having an understanding of the subject has practical meaning. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like Christians, such a Christian experiencers, such as Uh, Chris Bledsoe would be one of them, have been harassed by other Christians and sometimes even shamed out of their churches for telling people about their UFO experiences. And Christianity needs to broaden its paradigm so this can stop. And many Christians have experienced UFO abductions and encounters like Benny Andreessen, Whitley Strieber, Kelly Cahill. Uh, Katharina Wilson, uh, U.S. Air Force Sergeant Adrian Bustinza, U.S. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Jonathan Wagent. Every one of these people, to one degree or another, had experienced an existential crisis of faith as a result of their experiences. Because the pop Christian paradigms that they subscribed to were extremely narrow and simplistic and thus cannot account for the actual encounters with extraterrestrial intelligence. If you woke up at 3 a.m. with a you know eight-foot-tall praying mantis dressed in a hooded cloak leaning over you, speaking to you telepathically, as some have actually reported, uh, you think the Bible or tradition is going to help you out with that one, and <laughs> successfully answer all your burning questions? I think not. So, this only means that the paradigm must be updated and we need to stop trying to pump new wine into old wineskins. If we refuse to do this, more people will see Christianity as irrelevant and leave the faith, not because of any malice, (coughs) but because Christians have generally become so ignorant that the Christian perspective is essentially useless. And I'm trying to do my part in preventing this from happening. But I'm also not willing to ignore the facts or bend them to fit some pre-installed ideology or, or make a cheap convert with a shallow kind of absent-minded faith in their local church. Um, I have to be a reliable, honest, and impartial conveyor of information with a fully transparent rationale that can either be knowingly accepted or knowingly rejected. So that's, that's kind of my heart and all of that. That's that very fair. I'm
1: glad, I'm glad to hear that. That's good. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, so if that's you or if it's somebody, you know, or if you are, you know, one of the people in that, uh, I guess maybe the narrow paradigm that he's referring to uh, maybe this is your curiosity and you want to look into it a little bit more. You can, like I said, you can find it online, angels, archons, and aliens uh i'm still working through it uh but i'll be updating people as we go uh with and some more information yep. maybe it might be good to like say if there's anyone listening
0: to this that has such an experience maybe to contact you sure and and
1: tell you about it absolutely yeah i'd mean, be, be very i'd be very interested in that for sure yeah uh i don't know what i would do with it i think that's part of the, i think maybe it that's part of me <laughs> <laughs> there you go it's a relay yeah and you can actually find ambrose on what's your twitter handle again Ambrose? it's just ambrose angiano Ambrose Andriano, and uh, what is your favorite Italian food? Uh, Probably grandma's pizza. Oh, is is that like the pizza that your grandmother makes, or is that a place? No, the
0: grandma style. Okay, (laughs) but I don't know what that is. (laughs) It's like uh, they usually cut it in squares, and it has like the the sauce on top.
1: Okay, yeah, it's very good. Okay, good. My wife and I went to Italy four years ago, and I had some pizza there that I was over the moon with, and some pizza that I was not as much. So, American, American <laughs> Italian is different yeah. from Italian Italian for sure. So Absolutely. <laughs> right <on. laughs> hey, uh, Ambrose, thanks a lot for your time today, man. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me.